Hello and welcome back to the Barefoot Paws podcast where we teach them to want it. Uh, in this particular episode, this is episode 14, we are going to be discussing the most polarizing topic in the canine fraternity and that is punishment. Do I use it? Do I not use it? Why should I use it? Why should I not use it? Those are the things that we're going to have a bit of a chat about today. Now then, punishment. I've said the word. I'm actually going to do a podcast on it because I believe that punishment is the, probably the most extremely polarizing topic in the canine fraternity. Globally speaking, and it probably forever will be because um, science seems to point us in one direction, whereas our emotions are dictating that we respond in a certain way. Uh, and then we have the whole peer pressure thing. And there's a lot of misinformation about punishment. And there's a lot of bad information about punishment. So we're going to unpack some of that stuff today. We're going to kind of start with, as we usually do, with, with a definition. So what what is punishment? My clients don't tend to hear me talk about punishment very much because I talk about, I, I use different terms. I talk about things being nasty. If something is nasty, then I don't want to do it anymore. I, I want to avoid it. So, punishment is anything that results in a reduction in frequency and or intensity of an act. Right? So, if I go and tread on a cactus, that is going to be somewhat painful to me if I'm barefooted. I'm probably going to watch where I'm going the next time around. Or when I go and step in that same location, chances are I'm going to check out where I put my feet because there's spiny cacti floating around. Punishment can also be non-painful. Punishment could be something like, uh, I make some sort of a flippant comment, and my wife starts to get angry with me. Not that that's ever happened before. So the next time around, when it comes to such a, 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 a situation, I'm probably going to choose my words a little bit more wisely, because I don't want to... Personally, I want to avoid the discomfort of having hurt someone I love. I'm also, because that is someone that I care about very deeply, I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm going to do what it takes to avoid causing them an upset. So punishment works both internally as well as externally. But let's just cut through the nonsense. Punishment is something that happens in real life. If we didn't have punishment in real life, we would all be speeding, we would all be crossing the roads whenever we wanted, we would all be stealing, there would be all sorts of savage things that we would be doing. But we have punishment in place, and that prevents us from doing things that are not okay in a cultural explanation. But if we just really cut through the mustard, punishment is anything that results in the in the reduction in the frequency and or intensity of an act. So if I have, let's get back to the realms of dog training. If I have a dog that is barking incessantly and I get jack of it and I scream at my dog, they're going to stop barking. Two minutes later, they bark again. And they're barking with that full intensity of before. So I let it ride for a couple of minutes and then I scream my head off and the dog stops for another couple of minutes and then they go back to it. And then this goes on and on and on, and eventually I just get absolutely 
just totally frustrated. I lose my stuff. I do something horrible to my dog and my dog is sitting there going, I'm still pumped. I don't know what to do. So what is happening in that situation, and, and I'm sure we have all been there at some point, what is happening in that situation is I'm interrupting the behavior with something so startling and some something that is inducing a fear reaction in my dog, but eventually they recover and they go back to the problem that caused me to lose my stuff in the first place. So there's no actual punishment going on. I'm interrupting the behavior, I'm putting a full stop on their sentence, and then they take a couple of breaths and then they launch into the next paragraph. Then I come along, put another full stop on, and they take a couple of breaths, they launch into the next paragraph. So there's, there is neither a reduction in intensity, the, the speed, the pitch, uh, the, the amplitude, like the, the loudness of the bark. There's no change in the barking behavior, right? So it's going on, it happens. So it's not that the barking is getting less, it's not that the barking is getting louder, the barking is simply continuing. So there's no punishing effect from the input of just waiting it out and yelling and screaming. Another um, example is when I am walking a dog, they're hitting the end of the lead, and I finally get jack of it because they've happened to turn left and I've got my finger caught in the lead, and I just crack them really hard on the lead. Two minutes later, they're doing exactly the same thing. I get upset because I trip over my dog. I crack them on the lead. Two minutes later, they're going and doing the same thing again. And it is this constant catch-22 situation. Your dog has no understanding of what it is that is freaking you out, but it freaks them out even more. So they just go back into that savage behavior and they keep on going back into whatever it is that is driving them, driving your dog crazy in the first place, which then frustrates you, which then frustrates your dog, and there's that catch-22, and eventually you hit your threshold before your dog does, you lose your stuff, your dog feels the brunt of it, because now we're seeking justice and revenge, and your dog shuts up for a couple of minutes and is very cowed by what it is that you are doing. They don't understand why now all of a sudden I knew it was going to come, but what is it about now that made you lash out like that? And then they just become more frenetic over time. So what, I'm, what I end up building is, an, is a fearful, anxious, super pumped dog, and I am basically teaching them to live in that savage nature, which is not what many people want. So again, that's, that's an example of what punishment is not. Right? Punishment is strategic in its use, it is precise in its use, and I shouldn't have to keep applying punishment for the same thing. That's a really important statement to understand. If I keep, if I keep putting what I believe to be a punishing consequence or, or a punishing application towards my dog, and it's having no change in the behavior, then it's not us who dictates what the outcome is, it is our dogs. And the only way we can really determine that is do they keep going back to the same behavior, yes or no? It's always a question of yay or nay. So, why would we want to punish dogs? Look, generally speaking, we don't want to punish our dogs all the time. Like no one, no one that I know has brought a dog home so they can belt the living daylights out of them. Does it happen? Yes, it happens. There are people with issues that need some help. And the unfortunate fact is that they have somehow ended up with a dog. And that dog is the brunt of their frustrations. 
whether that be a mental health issue, whether that be a developmental issue, whether that's a, something else, is neither here nor there. We can't prevent what is outside of our control, but we can control what we are able to affect. So we're looking at why would I want to punish my dog? And we go, well, first, punishment in itself allows my dog to get on board with my lifestyle in the quickest way possible. Right, so it sounds a little bit sucky, but ultimately, there are certain things that your dog is not allowed to do. Whether that be for their own safety, whether that be for someone else in your family's safety, whether that be for general lifestyle situations, that's pretty much irrelevant. It is your lifestyle that determines what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. And when your dog steps out of bounds, then you do actually have the permission to put on your referee hat and punish that behavior. Keeping in mind, the rule is punishment. If I apply it, the outcome must be a reduction in frequency and or intensity of that target behavior. Now, one of the big things that we want to um, be aware of is, well, how do I, uh, how do I use this thing called punishment? How do I provide an input to my dog's brain that results in an output of don't do that anymore? Right? So the first thing, the first limitation that I have upon punishment is that I, I must witness the act or I must be witness the precursor to the act so let's say for example my dog is uh, a manic jumper they can't help but jump up on guests I've allowed it since they were a puppy and now my German Shepherd is I don't know 15 months old they weigh a little bit more than they did when they were 16 weeks old the behavior isn't cute anymore they're squealing like a stuck pig they're jumping up and they're bowling people over because they're too hard, they're too fast, they're too big, they're too manic. And, you know, whatever else comes along with that. So what I can start to do is I know someone is coming up the driveway. I know what my dog is going to do. I can use this as a teachable moment. What I have to be aware of is that I, I can use this teachable moment in many many different ways. There are many ways to skin a cat. What I can do is I can start to punish the precursors. So if my dog goes to run at someone to jump up on them, I've got them on lead. I can prevent that from happening. The dog in question simply cannot reach their target. Right, so I do that often enough and my dog realizes that the attempt to jump up is futile. So they go through a bit of a bit of a ramp up phase before the problem behavior goes away. What I could also do is more or less wait for them to start jumping and then I can in, then I can stop that behavior with an applied punisher. What I will not be doing is having my guests do anything that is coming around. They are simply the helper and I am the one who is going to deal out the punishment the applied punisher that comes from you has more gravitas to it. it. It means more. There's more inherent value to it. Now, like I said, I must witness it. If I don't witness 
the problem behavior, I cannot retrospectively address it. If I come home and my lounge is ripped up and my, my dog starts to give me that look like they're guilty, I can't do anything about it. I have to wear it. I cannot take it out of my dog because my dog doesn't understand it. And we're going to talk a little bit later about why it is that they don't understand it. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to make you listen for a little while longer. So first, the rule number one, I have to be able to catch it in order to be able to deal with it. So once I've caught the problem behavior, now I can give that behavior a name and I just call that no. Whatever it is that you are doing, no. Once I've again given that behavior a name, now I can deal with that behavior. There are two ways that I can deal with that behavior. I can give a punisher or I can... So I can give something to yield a punishing consequence or I can take something away to yield a punishing consequence. In broad strokes, I can give something that my dog wants to avoid or I can take something that my dog desires. Yeah, so... Uh, I'm playing with, with both ends of the spectrum on the punishment scale there. I can give or I can take. Either which one, the consequence is supposed to yield a reduction in frequency and or, and or intensity of the behavior. Yeah, so I've got to catch it, then I can give it a name, and then as soon as I say that name, my dog goes, oh, I'm busted. This is not going to be good for me. This is not beneficial for me. And then I can deal with it. Right? So, those are the three rules. Catch it, name it, then deal with it. Now, there are some limitations to punishment. Right? So, one of, the, one of the first things is a genetic limitation. So, if I go for a dive, I have a genetic limitation as to how much air I can hold and use. My spleen is only so big. My lungs are only so large. I can only pump so much oxygen through my blood system. I have a genetic maximum potential for what I'm able to do under the water. Right? Now, it's not really terribly much different with our dogs. I, our dogs, all just like us, also have a genetic predisposition towards specific thresholds. Now, we've talked about these thresholds before. I have a fear threshold, I have an aggression threshold, I have all sorts of thresholds where I go, right, now the straw has broken the camel's back, I can't hold myself back anymore, now I'm just going to go and do the thing. For our dogs, they may see red setters, and our dogs don't like red setters. Our dogs may see buses, and they don't like buses. Our dogs may be human or dog aggressive, because their parents were human or dog aggressive and their parents before them were human or dog aggressive and so on and so forth. So I have this, this genetic legacy. I also have um, confidence can be passed down through, the, through genetic inheritance as well as the lack of confidence. If, I, if I'm not confident in it, then I'm not willing to try to do this thing you want me to do in a situation where I'm, I'm not confident, I'm not able to do that. I cannot stand on this shaky pallet. I cannot sit on this shaky pallet. I cannot walk across this tarp. I cannot, I don't know, eat this novel food. 
So there are certain situations where our dogs are simply not capable of dealing with that situation. We're trying to ask them to do things that that are above the glass ceiling and our dogs can't break through that glass ceiling. There are genetic factors at play and if we're not careful, if we treat every dog like a dog, then we are taking away their God-given right to express themselves as their breed, which is what we brought them home for in the first place. So let, let's take a coolie, for example. Coolies, in my experience, tend to be quite loud. They bark. It's a coolie thing. They're, gen they're genetically wired to bark. I haven't met a quiet coolie yet. Yeah. So if I were to punish my, my coolie for barking to create a quiet dog, I'm not going to be able to do that. They get excited, they bark. It's a coolie thing. It's a trait. It's like trying to punish them for seeing. They can't help but be loud. Yeah. So I have genetic limitations. Now the issue there is, what if I have a genetic predisposition, as I was kind of mentioned before, about dog aggression? What if I have a genetic predisposition towards human aggression? It happens. There are dogs for sale for free on, on Gumtree, on, on all sorts of other sort of social platforms forever. They're going, going for cheap, they're going for free, and some of these dogs are going for expensive bucks too. And they don't belong in a home because they're, they're aggressive, they're super fearful, they're, they're so unhealthy either mentally or physically that their quality of life is questionable. That's a different can of worms altogether. But if I have a dog with that genetic makeup, then the glass ceiling is set at their standard. And it's very, very difficult to try and raise that to the point where it is impossible. If I have a truly aggressive dog, there is no rehabilitation. There are no one-minute wonders. Medication is not going to stop that. Smashing the daylights out of your dog for breathing in when you didn't tell them to breathe in is not going to stop them from being aggressive. They are going to find a way eventually, and they're going to be aggressive. So I have genetic limitations as to what my dogs are capable of doing and stopping themselves from doing. There's another kind of limitation, and that's what I refer to as compelled behavior. So everybody has a breaking point, right? If, if I have a dog that is cornered and I just continue to approach them, at some point, they are going to lash out at me because I've taken away all of the other options and the only reaction that is left is to punch their way out of a corner. And I tend to... Yeah, thanks, guys. And I, I think that we do that a lot with our dogs when we put them on lead. We're taking away a lot of their potential, um, op uh, their, their, their choices are limited to the antisocial and, uh, as <laughs> when we have a dog on lead they're, and they're in a defensive mindset, for example, they can't appease their trigger. They cannot run away from their trigger. So they're more or less going to have to punch their way out of the corner. They can't freeze. They can't appease. They can't run away. So I've got them cornered, essentially, on lead. And 
Now, my dog has to, because they have zero choice, react in a savage way, and it's going to suck for everybody. They're going to fly off the handle, they'll redirect onto you, they'll redirect onto the dog you're walking with, they'll redirect onto the pram, the bike, whatever it is, and you've got some serious issues. And the reason why that happened is because we've accidentally compelled our dog into failure mode. So there are limitations as to when is punishment useful? Because once I've compelled my dog into failure mode, man, there is no individual left in that brain. Codes, if I were to do that to her, there is no coder individual left in that brain. We are talking such deep, savage brain activity that she's not even a Malamute anymore. She's a dog. And she's going to do whatever it takes to get out of that situation. And once she calms down, then she becomes an Alaskan Malamute again. Once she's calmed down, then she can be coder again. Right, so there are limitations as to how effective punishment is in a given scenario. So compelled uh, failure can it can also be it can also be classed as flooding, but uh, compelled behavior can can be the outcome of a poorly managed or a, or a badly managed situation. It can also be the outcome of a repetition gone sour. Right? It can happen. Now, flooding is when I uh, take a dog and I subject them to the full intensity of their trigger. So let's just say, for example, my dog is scared of the vacuum cleaner. I turn the vacuum cleaner on. Whilst my dog is sleeping, they, they awake with a startle and there's the vacuum cleaner. It's on. It's moving. It's loud. It vibrates. It does all these things. Now, my dog has no way of dealing with that intellectually. They're going to deal with it savagely. And so essentially what I've done there is I've, I've subjected them to the full intensity of, that, of their problem. And we call that flooding. It's the sink or swim mentality. And it really never results in someone swimming. So those are the limitations. We have genetic limitations. We have um, bad repetitions where things go sour. So that compelled behavior. And as well as mismanagement and then I have the flooding aspect as well when do I use punishment so there there are broadly speaking there are three types of dogs yeah, we have our pet dogs we have our sporting dogs and we have our working dogs so our pet dogs are the ones that we have they live with us they can live they can be outside dogs they can be inside dogs right sport dogs again same thing but they tend to be a bit gnarlier than our pet dogs they tend to um whether that's bite sports whether that's um obedience they basically what i'm doing is uh, i am a handler at this stage and i'm going a little bit deeper into dog stuff i'm going to trials i'm going into competitions um i live and breathe this particular thing that i'm doing with my dog and my dog lives and breathes that particular thing. So your dog essentially has a specific pastime or pastimes that they enjoy doing, whereas your pet dog is more of a companion animal. Yeah. So our working dogs don't tend to be right, uh, your your pet dog type. Your working dog is hard to live with. Your working dog is a headache to live with because they have you don't want them to 
have the same boundaries as you would a pet dog because your working dog is, for example, your bomb detection dog, your narcotics detection dog, they're your apprehension dog. So in those instances, if I've got a dog that um, needs to be able to manhandle someone who is high on meth and wielding a meat cleaver, they've got to be able to do that. Your pet dog, generally speaking, they can't do that. So your working dog needs to be able to endure a lot more. And that means that the punishments that we're talking about largely today are not going to be effective in the house and home. Whereas for your pet dog, they are going to be largely effective in the house and home. Right, so when do I use punishment for my pet dog? I use them essentially to teach my dog the boundaries of the lifestyle at hand. We all have a lifestyle. Right. So maybe you live on a property and you don't care whether your dog comes in and out of the house willy-nilly. Maybe you have your doors open all the time. Maybe you live in an apartment and you can't afford that luxury and the dog isn't allowed to bolt out of the door. So your lifestyle simply dictates the limitations and the type of choices that your dog gets to make. Right. Totally cool. Sport dogs tend to be a little bit more the same, but then I'm also... In the avenue of the sport that I'm doing, I want to be careful how I'm using punishments. Because the ultimate outcome of, a, of an applied punisher is that my dog pauses and hesitates to deliver another behavior. Because if they do, it may be the wrong one. That is the outcome of a punisher. My dog goes, oh, hang on a second, I've got to figure this out. You just threw some some dots down, I've collected some dots out of this nasty situation. Let me just connect those dots that I've collected and I'll see whether I can figure out where the new sidelines are. I thought that this was okay, you're telling me it's not okay, I need to weigh this up. In a sporting sort of application, I can't afford for my dog to have that cloudy mind. I need my dog to understand that they're I want you to go, 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 because in a sporting application, there's a competitive element to it. I want points. We want to win. In a pet situation, I'm using that pinch collar to tell my dog, stop doing this. In a working application, think of the, the that pinch collar as an accelerator. Now, I've come across it before where people have had a chat to me and say, look, I've got a real gnarly dog on my hands, blah, 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 and the pinch collar's not working. And we dig around a little bit more, and lo and behold, they're doing bite sports with their dog. What are they doing as a source, what they're using as a source of activation, an accelerator for their dog, is the pinch collar. And then I take all the gear off, we're not in training anymore. So my dog is walking with the pinch collar and their normal flat collar or whatever, we go for a walk, my dog goes sideways when they see someone, and then I'm using the, the pinch collar. What do you think the dog's going to do? They're not going to suddenly shut off and go, oh, sorry, yeah, we've clocked off. They go, oh, I'm getting pinched. Bang, where's the trigger? I'm having at it. And then I go nutso with the pinch collar, and my dog goes nutso on the other end of the lead because I know, I get it, totally get it, I agree, I need to get there. Let me get over there. So our dog becomes more and more aggressive and less and less reactive in those sorts of situations. So the application of what I'm using as punishment tends to change. Again, if I've got a working dog, we're not doing it for points anymore. We're doing it for a very specific purpose. All right, so 
think of it in a, a different context. If I have a, uh, a dog that is uh, walking through the airport and they're looking for drugs, what we cannot have in the back of that dog's brain is an inhibition to say, if I get the wrong bag, I'm going to get smashed. If I get the wrong bag, I'm going to get smashed. Because what they will then do is they will stop indicating on certain bags. And that means that drugs are coming into the country, that other contraband is coming into the country. Next thing you know, we have an infestation of noxious weeds around because um, things got through biosecurity. Now, if the, the dog themselves, they have to be very clear as to why a punishment is occurring and it, it, it can't be performance decreasing. The punishment must be performance enhancing. Now, one of the themes that I wanted to talk about before we get into some of the, the, the more intricate details of punishment right, is should I bookend a punishing event with something nice? So essentially, this comes from our feeling of guilt and having done something that could be perceived as horrible by someone we love. And in, in this instance, it's our dog, right? So I've just told my dog off. I've given them a punisher because they have, oh, I, I don't know. I'll pick something that's, that's happened before. Uh, there was a, a client that we had. Um, the One of the issues was that the dog would eat these uh, uh, reddish brown sort of lava rocks. Right? Now there's an issue there. That can create a blockage. That can be super, super painful for the dog. It can create all sorts of um, gastrointestinal issues. That's thousands of dollars worth of treatment. There's recovery to that. There's all sorts of issues. So I decided the quickest way to stop that is to punish it rather than try and use other things. Right. So that's why I'm bringing it up now. So. We punished the behavior once, dog never went back to it again. Sweet. The, the risk of a blockage caused by eating a rock that is too large or by ingesting a certain amount of rocks over a period of time has just been eliminated. That means that over years to come, these undigestible pieces of rock aren't going to sit in the gut of the dog sitting there weighing them down, causing all sorts of whatever sort of toxic leakage and a potential case of gastrointestinal intestinal blockage, which I will only find when it's too late. And if I can get my dog to the vet, it's an expensive surgery and that's all sorts of trauma for my dog and for me. So I could stop it. But then I've done it. And then I turn around and go, do you know what? That really sucked for us both. I really don't like what I just did to you. I feel remorseful, so I will make myself feel better and I'll apologize to you. So they, and, and that's, that's quite often what I find is happening, is I feel bad about giving you a punisher, so I will now make you feel better. So here is the risk that I'm taking with that. First, I apply a punisher and my dog goes, whoa, Sorry, dude. I didn't know that was on the cards. I've been doing this for months and years. You never said anything about it. All right, not a problem. I'm just not going to eat those red lava rocks again. Wish you would have said that ages ago. 
And then we go, here's a cookie. And now my dog's like, hey, hang on. I don't get it. You first you said stop, then you gave me a cookie. You only ever give me cookies when you want me to do something. Now this is kind of, dude, I'm just a dog. I've got to figure this out. Hang on. Let me go eat another rock and find out. Bang. Oh, that sucked. Oh, cookie, that's nice. And then we have this constant revolving door situation where I am constantly applying a punisher. And then what tends to happen is my dog rises to the occasion and we are essentially toughening our dog up. So this tends to happen with lead corrections, right? We go with these gentle, hey, stop it, cut it out. I don't like it for a couple of minutes. And then we go, would you cut it out? And then we give an almighty crack on the lead and the dog's like, Oof, dude, you're really hard to gauge. Like, I thought I could predict you, and I'm not so sure. This is making me super anxious. Right? So what do I do in that particular instance? I have to catch myself out from apologizing to my dog for giving them a punishment. The pu I am never, ever, ever punishing my dog. Ever. I am punishing the behavior. Two very different things. And this leads me back to what I said in the first instance. Punishment itself is an extremely politicized topic. The choice of calling it punishment, in my opinion, was politically motivated. This isn't going to turn into a diatribe of conspiracy theories. But the idea of calling it punishment leaves a bitter aftertaste in your mouth and you go, oh, I'm going to follow that up with something nice. So we take away the teachable moment from our dog. Our dog has now been, has lost that God-given right to learn what not to do. So now my dog goes back and eats those lava rocks and in a couple of years' time, they've got half a kilo of lava rocks sitting in their guts causing a blockage or whatever it else it is that they're eating, be that socks, be that pieces of tennis ball, be that pieces of furniture, be that pieces of toys, be that whatever it is, is irrelevant. You've decided that, hey, we're not supposed to do this, and then you follow it up with something nice, and your dog goes, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm supposed to get tougher. So we do this nagging thing with the lead. Hey, cut it out, 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 stop it! So we start with these light little pops on the lead. Hey, sorry, I, don't, I just don't want to interrupt you, but could you please just maybe not do that? I find it mildly offensive. And in, in the end, I'm sitting there chainsawing my dog in half because I've had a gut fall. And my dog turns around to me and says, dude, I don't get it. If you, want, if you want it, then just, you know, tell me you want it. If you don't want it, dude, tell me you don't want it. But this stuff that you're doing in between, I find it very confusing. It pumps me up and then I can't feel all of the light stuff. So I wish you'd just get it over and done with straight away. So no. I'm not going to apologize to my dog for providing a punisher. The punisher itself is a, an outcome to a teachable moment. Stop doing that thing. Whatever it is, that thing is. That is relevant to your lifestyle. That is your choice how to use and apply that punisher. However, another question that gets asked is, well, Stu... I've just punished my dog for doing whatever that thing is. And then they come up to me and they're kind of like, I don't know, am I allowed to give them attention now? Of course, of course you're allowed to like give your dog some attention. Of course your dog is allowed to apologize. And make no mistake, that is what they're doing. If I 
give my dog a punisher, they suddenly turn on the whole puppy face and they go, oh, I'm so sorry. And that that will happen as soon as I drop the N-bomb in the house. My dogs will go, uh-oh, I'm busted. I know exactly why I'm busted. I know exactly what's about to happen. Next time I'm going to think twice. Yeah? So, and after the fact, they'll come up. They'll say, hey, is everything okay? Yeah, buddy, everything's okay. You just, you can't do that. All right? So, that leads us on to... We talked in a couple of episodes ago about defense and social, and that's going to be a recurring thing. So defense is when my dog is essentially feeling that there's a threat around, they're perceiving a threat. So when I drop the N-bomb in my house, my dogs stop what they're doing and they go into that defensive mode. And when they turn on the puppy face, then they're going into a pee. So, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Can I somehow turn this pressure off? And you go, nah, dude, y'all can't turn this pressure off. The pressure's on. So they they then will eventually, after that consequence, they will come up and they'll go, dude, I'm so sorry. And I go, yeah, I get it. It's okay. We can kiss and make up. So we go out of defense into social. So we're building back a bit of that relationship because... Punishments are extremely powerful. The The worst outcome that we can provide our dogs is to open the door and kick them out and shut the door. That is the thing that stops your dog from going absolutely psycho. If they value being in your home. And a dog that, that has a beneficial, uh, has a joyous relationship at home, be that pet sport or working... The thing that they never, ever want to come across is being ostracized out of the family unit because they understand in the deepest parts of that savage brain that if I am socially isolated, I am history. So punishments are super powerful. Now, we don't threaten them with that, but this is why your dogs are coming to apologize. They're not doing it to please you. That's a romantic notion built upon times there we didn't know better. But they're doing it to make sure they still have social standing. And yes, you still have social standing. It's okay. You just can't do that thing. And that can be confusing for dogs. And I I would advise you to have a look at any sort of wolf documentary where they're going through a social hierarchy thing. And you'll see you'll see them doing that. It'll be fast, it'll be frenetic, it'll be hard to keep up with, but you see it all the time. Dogs growl, air snap at each other, they snap at each other, they rip a bit of fur out of each other, and the other dog, once they realize what's going on, they start to go, oh, I'm so sorry, they get low. They come from up from underneath, they're licking at the mouth, they're doing all these puppy behaviors, like, hey, is it okay, is it okay? And the other dog's just kind of standing there taking it, essentially saying, dude, it's all right, I just can't let you do that thing again. Yeah. Right, now then, false positives, the they-must-be-guilty effect. So, back in the day of housebreaking, this is a prime example of, of a false positive when you, when we are using something that we would refer to as a punisher. Right? Uh, I walk into my living room, there's a steaming pile of poo in the middle of the living room, and my puppy is over by the coffee table having a bit of a sniff. 
I grab that puppy with all my fury. I shove their head into the deepest, warmest pits of that poo. I rub their nose into it gratuitously for 30 seconds, and then I peg him out the back. Then I can clean up the crap. So what happens the next time that my puppy has a number two in the lounge room? Oh, so let's revisit that scenario. Repetition number two. I walk into the living room. There is a steaming pile of poo over by the lounge. My puppy is sitting, looking straight at me with pinned ears and big puppy eyes. And my head goes nuts. You knew better. Look at you. You know you stuffed it. Yell and scream at my dog. I body slam them into the crap. I, I make them roll their entire body into it. There's poo everywhere. Then I peg them outside and clean up. So. Repetition number three. Now. I walk into the living room. I don't see any poo. My dog is looking at me with pinned ears and big puppy eyes. I'll go, yeah, you did it. I know you did it. Look at you. You look guilty. I'm going to smash you. Where's the crap? And you look around, you can't find the poo anywhere. What the dog's done is they've hidden it. You can't find it. It's behind the curtains. So why is this happening? First of all, what we have to pay attention to is, remember I was talking about that genetic component? That puppy does not have suitable bowel control for the amount of freedom that they've been granted. Now let's put this in a human context. Why do babies wear nappies? Why during potty training do we put a pull-up or a nappy onto the toddler? Because they're going to have accidents. Why do I have like wee mats and other sorts of mattress protectors on a young or, or an older toddler's bed? Because they're going to have accidents. And then we have our dog and we go, yeah, they just shouldn't. And it doesn't make any sense. There's still a biological entity that pretty much, when we look at it, they put food in, they shove food back out again. No different to us. So there's a genetic component. There's a developmental component. My puppy is not able to exercise the amount of bowel control that I'm expecting of him. It's not possible. So punishment is not going to work. But they feel guilty, Stu. I can see it. No, they don't feel guilty. Do they feel remorseful? No, I'm not too sure about that. But we're getting closer to the mark. What is happening is our, do our dogs aren't stupid. They're smart enough. So it's conditional. Condition one. First, they don't know that pooing in the living room is not okay by you. You then come, come along and you smash them into the, the poo and then you, you throw them outside. The second time that happens, it was such a traumatic event that the dog, so the puppy hears your footsteps coming down the hallway. You walk into the living room. They're staring at you with the puppy eyes, with the pinned ears, because they know, they know poo in the living room plus you equals get smashed. So they, they know what the outcome is of poo being in the room. And yet they can't stop themselves from pooing because you've given them too much leeway because they don't have effective bowel control because they don't understand me defecating in the lounge room is what made you do what you did. 
They don't get that. They can't compute that. They can't calculate that far back. That's too many steps. That's too abstract for them. For us, it's obvious. For our dogs, not so. So what happens is, my puppy goes, Oh, I need to poo. Oh, where? Oh, I don't want to get smashed. So I'll hide. I'll hide and poo. And then when you come in, they still betray their actions. They don't want to get caught out having a poo because poo plus you equals get smashed. So they don't want you around when they have a number two. But then when you come into the room, they can't help but give it away. They're like, oh, dude, there's poo in this room and there's you and I'm going to get smashed. So Kefi is a great example for that. Like in, in whatever previous home he was in, he was getting hammered for, for being given too much liberty. To this day... I've had him for almost a year now. He has done three poos on lead. The last one, he did a handstand. A handstand. He's that traumatized by the event that he's doing a handstand. He is shoving his butt in the air to do anything to try and keep that thing in. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of trauma. And he will not defecate in plain view. He will hide in the bushes to defecate. Because he's had exactly that scenario played out on him. So he will do whatever it takes to hide when he needs to defecate. And he will turn his back on an entire yard of dogs if we're at daycare. And there's loads of other dogs around. He will squeeze himself up against the fence. Turn his back to everyone. And then do his business. So it's a false positive because what happens is as our puppy develops and they get better bowel control, they stop doing mistakes in the first place. For them, it's distasteful to have to walk around their poo. Like, it's, dis it's disturbing to their sense of smell and their fragile sensibilities to have to, I don't want to roll around in my own crap. I'll just crap out in the toilet area. Thanks very much. And then obviously we teach them. Which is outside of the realms of the punishment aspect of what we're talking about, right? So, no, they are not feeling guilty. They are putting the conditions together. The conditions are, I've just, there's, the, there's a ripped up lounge. There's some destruction in the house. And your presence equals I get smashed. The conditions are not, I did this bad thing and you are there. It simply doesn't work like that. I'm sorry, but I'm happy to burst that bubble. Now, there's a, an issue with the overuse of punishment. And there are, uh, there are a bunch of trainers who are able to do some fairly quick, let's call them turnarounds. Uh, or we can also refer to them as um, one-minute miracles. Whereby, uh, yeah, you give me your dog, I'm going to charge you for an hour session, and then I'm going to tell everybody that I fixed it in one minute. So it's already bogus, right? What happens is, if I smash a dog into oblivion and take all of their choices away from them and tell them, like, no, you may not breathe in right now, now you can, now you can't. If I put that amount of constraint on my dog, what I end up with is an apologetic-looking fur bag. Nobody wants one of those. All I'm doing is shoving food in, picking up after them. That's it. Nobody buys a dog to pick up their dog's crap. Nobody does that. Maybe one or two. 
But if I only use punishment, my dog stops or they learn to stop trying to do things. So then I get a one-trick pony who is waiting to take their last breath. So again, that that's not a limitation on punishment. That is an effect of too much punishment and not enough direction as to what to do. There's also a danger of not using enough punishment. So then there's one of the side effects of punishment is resilience. My dog understands that they are able to deal with certain pressures in life. It happens. No dramas, no big deals. I apologize for codes snoring in the background if that gets picked up. But most importantly, that there for our dog and our relationship is that our dog doesn't have the right boundaries. Our dog is able to counter surf. Our dog is able to rush through the door and greet people before they've even come in. My dog is able to rifle through everything. They start chewing up the iPad, the iPhone, uh, the laptop. They start chewing up my furniture. Um, I leave them, the, my dog in the car for five minutes and they have ripped the car seats to shreds. These are things that I've seen. It's from a lack of boundaries. Uh, and that means that my dog is pushed into an anxious state because they don't know what to do with that nervous excitement so they start doing things to relieve themselves such a, and that's going to be savage so they start destroying things they start to to become more belligerent in their behavior right. so again i'm not going to get into uh, the rabbit hole of, of things i just want to paint in some fairly broad terms the dangers of overuse and the dangers of not using punishment. Alright Stu, enough of this abstract talk about punishment. How on earth do I punish my dog's behavior? So we kind of talked about that at the beginning. First I've got to catch it in the act. Right? Then I can give that act a name. And then I can deal with it. Now, what I tend to do with my clients is uh, we'll grab a bath towel, we'll grab a couple of hair ties, we'll roll that bath towel up into uh, a Swiss roll sort of shape, and then essentially we're going to apply the towel to our dog for doing the intolerable act. So, sounds a bit harsh. I challenge you to do it. Whack yourself in the arm as hard as you can with that towel, and then let me know how much it hurt. Essentially... What we are doing is we are snapping our dog's mindset out of whatever it is they're doing and forcing them, we're compelling them to think about something else. And we do it with enough intensity that matches our dog. I have literally rolled a towel that has barely touched the front paw of a Labrador and they squeal. And I have I have broken up a fight with a red nose pity and a blue amstaff and they were fighting over me rolling up the towel. I whacked them on the head each with the towel, stopped it instantaneously. So was it a serious fight? Yeah no. Nah. Was it a fight? Yeah. They lived in 16 square meters of horrid backyard. So they fought all the time. 
But then I come along with a towel and say, do you know what? That's not cool. Stop doing that stuff. That was the first and last time that they had an argument around me. After that, they were fine. So the, the towel itself doesn't hurt. Think about the, the two pities that I just talked about. Uh, those two battle reeds. They were ready. They were flying at each other's faces. And before they made contact, I whacked them on the head with the towel. They both stopped. They were both looking to sink their teeth into each other. That was the reason why I was there. And it only took an application of the towel to them to stop them in their tracks. These are dogs, again, looking to put teeth into each other's faces. They're ready to lose an eye. They're ready to have an ear ripped off. They're ready to have half their face ripped off. And with a towel, they stopped. The towel don't hurt. Having parts of your face ripped off, that's pain. The towel, that's not pain. There's a thud to it, 100%. I would challenge you to say that it's painful. Whack yourself in the arm. Tell me how painful it is. What it does is it provides an input that is so staggering to our dogs. It's so startling that they go, I have to think about this. That wasn't cool. All right, so when I'm walking my dog, generally speaking, I'm going to use the lead in place of the towel. I'm going to snap on the lead hard enough for my dog to go, yeah, nah. I'm not going to do that again. I can you generally speaking, the lead, the way I teach its use, is a seatbelt. The seatbelt is there to stop me from flying through the windscreen in the car. It keeps me safe. And that is what happens with our dogs. I walk them on lead because, well, one, it's the law. Two, it keeps my dog safe in an emergency situation. Three, it may potentially keep other people safe. It may keep other dogs safe. I don't know what other people are going to do. I can only control what is under my control, and that is my dog. So I can use the lead to apply a punisher to my dog. A quick, sharp snap on the lead, and my dog goes, That sucked. How do I turn that off? Oh, okay. I get it. Thanks. Could have told me that in the first place. So the towel and the lead are two great ways of giving a nasty consequence, which results in punishment. Remember, punishment is the reduction of frequency and or intensity of the behavior. Now, there are also times where if I go and towel my dog or I go and snap my dog on the lead, that will act as an accelerator. Those two um, battle breeds in question, I was fairly certain that that was going to work. Right? There are other situations where dogs are truly aggressive and if I sit there whacking them on the backside with a towel, it's basically like slapping a prize fighter in the face. They're going to come back at it harder and faster and they're going to get more into the fight mood. So I've got to be careful about whether the, the application of punishment that I'm putting in is going to yield a nicer and nasty consequence. Am I pushing them further into the behavior or am I pulling them out of the behavior? So at home, for example... Sweet, I've got a crate. So what I can do is I can drop the M-bomb on my dog. I can say, nay, you may never do that again. I can take them over to the crate. I can put them in the crate and they can stay there for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, one and a half hours, whatever that case may be. Now they are socially isolated. Now they are isolated from everything else 
that they could possibly hope to have access to. They have no resources in there. They have no occupation in there. All they can do in there is chill out because that's what we've trained the crate to be, a chill out zone. My dog will always be calmer coming out than they were going in. And the crate does its work. As soon as I chuck my dog in, my dog is in the crate because they're ultimately agitated. Within 20 minutes, they are half as agitated as they were before. Yeah. In 40 minutes, my dog is a, a quarter as agitated as they were before. Right. So the crate, I can use the crate to restrict my dog's options. And essentially, and this kind of goes on to the next one, is I can remove access to something in order to yield a nasty consequence. Because all consequences are given through give and take. Now, what do I mean by access? Let's just say, for example, a, a dog comes up to me. I'm just going to have a, a sip of tea. I'm playing, uh, I'm playing fetch with my dog. I throw the ball. My dog comes back at me at 100 miles an hour, just like for the last couple of minutes. They spit the ball out and they start barking incessantly. I can then drop the N-bomb on them. I pick the ball up and I pocket it. And they look at me like, where's the ball? What you do with the ball, dude? So they go and grab another ball. They come back and they start barking at me. go, yeah, no. Nah. And I pocket the ball. And soon enough they go, right, let's spit the ball out. They spit the ball out and they don't bark. Now I can go, yep, pick the ball up and chuck the ball for them. All right. So because what I'm doing in that instance is I'm, I'm only reducing the intensity. I'm not, I don't want to kill the game. What I want to do is keep my dog from doing 250Ks because I don't want the barking, for example. So me taking the ball away is removing access to the game. They are no longer able to chase, they can't grab, they can't kill, they can't parade around with the ball, they can't go running after it, they can't do all these cool things because they barked. So what I'm doing then is I'm waiting for them to spit the ball out. If they're barking, that's what I'm waiting for. No, you can't bark, put the ball away. So the application of the Punisher is contingent to what my dog is doing, not to what they've done. Right? So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, a little while ago, I had a dog called Luca. He's, he was a black Kelpie. He and Codes got along pretty well. They would wrestle and they would get up to all sorts of cool stuff. They would sit, they would lie down on the back deck and they would wrestle around literally. But I've got two big glass sliding doors on my back deck, and they would inevitably roll into those. So I've got a two-story house. I don't have to be there to catch it. I can hear it. I don't want to kill the game. I do want to prevent them from touching glass, because I don't want them rolling into glass. I don't want them running into it. I don't want them scratching it, licking it. I don't want them to pummel each other into the glass because ultimately the glass could break. And if my dog survives that, it could be severely traumatic and life-changing. So no touching the glass. So how do I deal with that? All right, sweet. Now, I hear the thud as a dog rolls into the glass. I say no loud enough for the, my, both my dogs to hear it. I come downstairs. There they are with their puppy eyes. And I go, Luca, you go on your bed. Codes, you go on your bed. And then we wait. We wait a little while until they're chilled out. Thank you. Walk back inside. My dogs shake it off. 
they go back to playing their game. It took three repetitions for my dogs to realize, oh, it's touching the glass. Touching the glass makes Stewie say no. Let's not touch the glass anymore. So, but what happened was that the game, the, the sidelines of the game changed. They still rolled around. They still were loud. They were still fully intense in their wrestling and their play fighting. It was great. One thing they, that they never did after that third application, they never touched glass again. It was awesome. It was great. So it's not all about physically beating the daylights out of your dog. That's not punishment. That's justice. And that's our perceived idea of revenge. And that's, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, there was a little time ago where um, we decided that our dogs are not allowed to come upstairs. So I had some um, bean bags. And if the dogs looked upstairs, I would just drop a bean bag down. And my dog would go, oh, there was that sudden thud. I don't want that sudden thud. That startles me. I'll not look up the stairs. Now, no more coming up the stairs. So, there are ways that I can apply things. Sorry, there are, there are specific strategies that in which I can apply a punisher. I can give or I can take. I can give something that my dog doesn't like or I can take away access to something that my dog does like. Yeah? And that then is what I can use to get a punishing result contingent to the behavior at hand. Now, I think I'm, I'm kind of hoping that I've triggered enough people now. That's a, a lot of discussion about punishment, how we can use punishment strategically, how we avoid using punishment arbitrarily, how I can use punishment to allow my dog to get on board with our lifestyle, how I can determine what are the limitations of punishment, what are things that I simply can't punish because my dog will always be like that. I will always have uh, a beagle that bugles. I will always have a Malamute that howls. Right? I, will I will always have a Malamute that sheds. There are certain things that we just cannot remove from our dogs. And if I'm not okay with that, then we need to find that dog another home. And that's okay, your lifestyle simply, that they don't match. I've seen that plenty of times. It's okay. We shouldn't feel so much guilt about it not working out. Question at hand. How many relationships have you been engaged in before you got married? You've had some serious ones, I bet. And you've had some not so serious ones, I bet. And they are all rehearsal for the real thing. Now, it is okay to punish the behavior that your dog is offering so that your dog no longer offers that behavior. Right? No matter how force-free things are wanting to be, the crate ultimately is a form of punishment. When I use it, contingent to what my dog is doing. Right? So if my dog is doing something that I don't like and I crate them, I am taking away access to the thing that they are enjoying. Yeah? So one thing that we have to keep in mind is whenever my dog is doing something that I class as intolerable, chances are they find it desirable and I have to convince them that A, that behavior is futile, B, it ends in something that is intolerable to you. That's why we can't bookend things. Yeah. 
I hope that you have gotten a lot of um, information out of this. I hope that you can collect those dots and, and put them together to, to help you and your dog out. If you've got any questions, please do let me know at barefootpaws at mail.com. You can email me there. You can come over to our Facebook group, uh, the Barefoot Paws uh, discussion group. Come on over, join us. We'd love to have you. Uh, you can also reach out to me uh, through my website at barefootpaws.com.au. I'm going to cue the music. You can have a drive to that on the way out, and I'll speak to you on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>